Chinese foreign direct investment in the European Union has skyrocketed over the last decade, increasing by almost 50 times between 2008 and 2016. However, investment levels have since flatlined and even fallen as a result of both a downturn in China's domestic economy as well as growing political headwinds in the global business landscape. With the United States continuing to ramp up its scrutiny on inward Chinese investment, the question for many is whether the EU will follow in the footsteps of its traditional ally and erect significant barriers for Chinese investors seeking to capitalize on this lucrative market. I'm Vincent Chow, a reporter at China Law and Practice and host of the China Law Podcast, a weekly podcast exploring China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. With me today to discuss tightening scrutiny of Chinese investment in Europe is Caroline Thomas and Jay Modrell, partners at Norton Rose Fulbright. Caroline is a competition lawyer based in London with 15 years of experience in advising companies on all aspects of UK and EU competition law, including merger control and state aid. Jay, meanwhile, is a competition lawyer based in Brussels with 27 years of experience advising companies on EU and international competition work, in particular the review and clearance of international mergers and acquisitions. In this episode, we discuss the new foreign direct investment screening regulation coming into effect next month in the European Union, as well as an implementation guideline for the regulation issued in March by the EU's executive arm, the European Commission, in response to the pandemic. On the UK side, we discuss what the country's foreign investment landscape post-Brexit might look like, particularly with a new foreign investment screening regime set to be introduced in the form of a new piece of legislation set to be tabled in the coming months. Caroline, Jay, welcome to the China Law Podcast. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. I want to start by discussing COVID-19, something that we can all agree on has changed virtually every aspect of our lives, not least how global business and investment is being conducted. Specifically, what has the impact of the pandemic been on how European countries and the European Union generally are treating foreign investment and acquisitions? Carolyn, uh, maybe I should start off with the EU perspective uh, here, and you can uh, you can jump in and give a UK counterpoint. In March 2020, the Commission uh, issued guidance on the implementation of the EU's new FDI screening framework regulation, which we're going to come back to, I know, in more in more detail, which was really unusual for for several reasons. Um, first of all, the regulation is going to come into effect only next month. So the fact that the EU was issuing guidance already in March was clearly a response to the pandemic and unusual. Second, I think, was the focus of, of the Commission's guidance on investments relating to uh, the healthcare sector, and the, the, that might seem obvious uh, when you consider the pandemic context, but actually healthcare was not one of the major sectors that was identified as a priority when the regulation was being uh, discussed, and uh, is not a coincidence perhaps that the guidance was issued only a few weeks after rumors were, um, uh, were, were seen in the press regarding a potential acquisition of a German vaccine company by the United States, not by Chinese investors. Um, and the third, I think more generally, uh, element in, in that which was interesting was the, 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 the fact that the EU was being so proactive about it because, as we'll discuss, the EU regulation doesn't give uh, any deciding role or decision-making powers to the Commission, only a coordinating uh, role. Carolyn, do you want to comment from the UK perspective? 
Yes, thanks, Jay. So I think um, it's a not dissimilar position in the UK that um, as the pandemic has continued as, as, as um, the effects have obviously been felt, um, the government in the UK has looked to protect sectors related to public health um, and has actually broadened the powers of the agencies to look at acquisitions in the public health sector, um, particularly, as Jay mentioned, thinking about things like vaccine manufacturing, PPE manufacturing. So we are seeing, I think this is a kind of a broader trend, um, that governments are concerned about the potential impact of the pandemic on their ability to um, protect their populations and so are wanting to make sure that they have sufficient control um, in order to be able to do that um, and in the UK they've slightly changed the legislation to enable that to happen more easily than it would have done previously. Part of the fear is that because of the economic hit of COVID-19 some companies or businesses might be vulnerable to foreign takeovers in these key sectors. Yeah yeah I think that's it. I think there's two there's almost two parts to it in uh, in the UK, there's first of all, there's the kind of specific actual, you know, things you need to combat a pandemic. Um, so like vaccines and so and so on. And then there's the, the broader, bigger picture issue that the economic disruption caused by the pandemic might affect valuations, might affect how businesses are performing. And that might mean that assets or businesses are, um, you know, available um, to be to be acquired um, more easily than might be in the case if, if the economy had continued in a more normal course. And so I think governments are starting to think about, well, actually, do we need to give ourselves further powers in order to protect some strategic and important technology? or other important assets um, as a result of this kind of broader disruption. Right, and this is all set against the backdrop of increasing Chinese investment into Europe and the UK over recent years. So since the pandemic has hit, we know that PPE and healthcare has become a key point of contention between uh, numerous Western countries and China uh, in terms of the dominance of some major Chinese suppliers in these sectors. And so for a Chinese investor, what would you say are the relevant takeaways uh, from these recent reforms that have arisen from the pandemic? Um, are these changes temporary or is it something that can be expected to be in place for the foreseeable future? I don't think the change is temporary, or at least, at least not short term. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more scrutiny uh, across Europe, certainly in the EU, um, across a range of sectors. Again, not, not just the UK, not just the healthcare sector, or, or even, even primarily the, the healthcare sector, uh, perhaps. And uh, I think that's going to be the case for... Uh, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think this is part of um, a broader trend that has been continuing for a few years. In, in the UK, there's been discussion of uh, extending foreign direct investment screening going back as far as, as 2016. Um, so I think obviously the pandemic has given a new focus to some of these concerns and has particularly um, addressed the healthcare sector. And it may be that, you know, when hopefully the pandemic is all over and it's a distant memory, the focus on the healthcare sector eases a little bit. But I think more generally, the uh, the kind of the broader trend and the concern about foreign investment and making sure it's screened um, more rigorously, I think, is something that's that's likely to stay. So let's talk more about that key piece of legislation, which is yet to come into effect. Um, I believe in October, and which is the EU uh, Foreign Direct Investment Screening Regulation, uh, and that was introduced last year in March. So Jay, uh, let me come to you first. What are the key elements of this new regulation? Yes, I think it actually is an example of a regulation that will have a bigger impact than has generally been realized or than the European Commission has, uh, has admitted to, uh, to be honest. 
the over the years there has been a number of uh, foreign direct investment screening mechanisms implemented at the national level and uh, a growing concern that there was a lack of coordination uh, between the member state uh, regimes. And this regulation was originally proposed uh, several years ago with backing from the, the major member states to provide a coordination mechanism. Uh, of course, the, the subject of foreign investment, direct investment screening is very sensitive and touches on national sovereignty. And the European Commission was very careful to propose only a coordination role for itself, not a decision-making role. And in their public statements, when the draft legislation was first proposed and all the way through uh, adoption, they have been very careful to stress that final decisions remain with the member states and they only have a coordinating and advisory role. Uh, I think that is, has been a, a politically expedient uh, position for them to take, taking kind of a, appearing to take kind of a back seat, whereas uh, their coordinating role, I think, has the potential to be quite important, especially in situations where there's a difference of opinion between member states and the commission uh, steps into the role of honest broker to, <coughs> without making the decision for the, the, the host member state, um, perhaps expressing views, putting pressure even uh, on that member state to take other member state concerns into account. And I, again, the March 2020 guidelines, I think, are an example of that, the commission stepping forward and taking a more proactive role than many would have expected. Uh, I should have mentioned that there's no provision in the regulation for the commission to issue such guidelines at all, but they did so anyway, and they did so six months before the regulation was uh, even scheduled to come into force. And so the regulation provides for an obligation on member states to give, quote, due consideration to comments and opinions of other member states and the European Commission itself uh, when reviewing foreign investments. And I just want to uh, zero in on that term there, uh, due consideration. What does that mean exactly? It, it's, it's a legal weasel word, which is intended to uh, reassure member states that they, they, they have the final decision and the commission can't impose anything on them. And as a legal matter, that's true, but in reality, the commission would carry uh, quite a lot of weight, I think, especially if it was acting as the representative of interests which are being expressed behind the scenes by a number of member states who uh, individually or even collectively would not have the political will to step forward publicly or the ability to exercise pressure. So the, regula the regulation even provides for a special category of transactions which are deemed to be of, quote, union interest. And for these transactions, the European Commission will have even greater authority and the member states in which an, uh, uh, foreign investment is planned will have to take, quote, utmost account of the European Commission's opinions and explain any non-compliance. And so how, how do you think we're going to get clarity on what these terms mean and how this regulation will play on practice? Is it a matter of waiting for the European courts to introduce some case law and some precedents? Well, I think it will be some years, uh, if ever, before we have case law on uh, what these terms actually mean. Um, in the near term, uh, what we will have is the European Commission setting up a, a new team and new uh, 
uh, procedures uh, to coordinate these, uh, these screening processes. And each one will play out in a very different way. But I think you can, you can imagine a few different uh, scenarios. Uh, say that you've got a proposed foreign directive investment going into a major jurisdiction uh, such as Germany. You can think of um, Nord Stream 2, for example, uh, which is a Russian investment that uh, Germany strongly favors. Some other member states uh, and the United States, for that matter, uh, do not. <coughs> and other member states might have concerns about it for one reason or another, and they might be looking to the European Commission to help uh, give them additional leverage to persuade the major member state, you know, hypothetically Germany, uh, to uh, either not allow the investment at all or to impose conditions. And you can imagine the, the flip side as well. Uh, some smaller member states that are financially weaker are widely uh, seen as being more receptive to foreign direct investment, even on terms that uh, some other member states uh, would, uh, would, would not be comfortable with. Think of some of the uh, less financially sound uh, Southern and Eastern European countries. And there you might have the opposite situation where the host country is eager to approve the foreign direct investment for financial reasons. Uh, other member states, including potentially uh, major member states like Germany or France, may be reluctant to uh, be seen to be exerting pressure to uh, impose conditions on such an investment and may find it politically expedient uh, to allow the commission to carry the water, so to speak, on those discussions. Okay, so without going into the weeds of Brexit and how that is, uh, that is unfolding now, um, does this European Union-level regulation kind of apply to the UK as well, Caroline? Well, it, it will in the, in the very short term before the end of the Brexit transition period. And I guess the kind of the longer, the longer term view is the extent to which the um, question, big question, is the extent to which the UK um, kind of follows similar approaches or diverges from the approach that the, the commission and the other and the member states take in considering some of these transactions and whether and to what extent, um, you know, there's some kind of consistency in terms of what's considered difficult or problematic. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's very difficult to say at this stage. I think big picture in kind of broad terms, the sorts of issues the general shift um, in terms of what's of concern as regards foreign foreign investment, moving from your kind of traditional defence type or, or you know strategically valuable utilities type investments, more and more towards technology, AI and, and quantum computing and so on, being some of the most recent things that have been called out in the UK's uh, regulation. I think I would expect that to be consistent. Um, but more generally, how the two regimes will work together, I think it's it's going to be very interesting to see. So then I guess the, the question for both of you is how explicit these reforms are uh, in terms of targeting Chinese investment, um, both the recent reforms uh, to the EU as well as individual countries' uh, foreign investment reforms. It's clearly not explicitly targeted at, um, at Chinese-backed investment. Um, it's probably fair to say that some of the most uh, kind of high-profile cases that we've seen discussed in the press have quite frequently f featured Chinese investment. Um, and so you can kind of draw conclusions from that as, as, as you will. Um, but I think that as these regimes become more embedded um, and people are more used to them, I think that they will actually crop up in a, in a range of different types of contexts and may have some quite 
unexpected um, unexpected outcomes. Um, so I, you know, I think a lot of the discussion to date has focused around Chinese investment, but I don't think that's the only the only issue here. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I think there's an element of political expediency almost. Um, the discussions around the sort of EU regulation um, over the past uh, three five years, say. Uh, took place often in a, against a background of concern about uh, Chinese investors, um, for example, acquiring uh, German technology companies or uh, machine tool companies uh, and so on. And I think that was important to the building of the political coalition for it. And interestingly, the U.S. government strongly supported the EU framework, and I think they they did so on the understanding that it would be uh, an important um, additional, quote-unquote, safeguard, if I can say so, uh, in connection with the Chinese investment into, into Europe and then potentially indirectly also into the United States. But as we saw from the French case uh, this, uh, this spring, uh, which involved the blocking of an American acquisition, I think that the actual impact may be much broader Certainly, Chinese investors will need to be, be careful about this, and the scrutiny will also uh, concern a proposed inward investment by Chinese investors, but by no means only Chinese investors. One of the contributing factors, perhaps, to this focus on Chinese investment is this white paper published in June by the European Commission proposing to tackle the distorting effect of foreign subsidies in the acquisitions of EU companies as well as in public procurement. The white paper is now under public consultation until the end of September, with a view to being finalised in the form of draft legislation in the coming months, before going through the standard legislative procedure of the EU. So given the background of growing Chinese investment into Europe that we've mentioned, as well as China's notoriously large state enterprise sector, many have said that this white paper is targeting Chinese SOEs acquiring assets in Europe. Now before we discuss whether this is in fact true, can we have a summary of exactly what this white paper proposes to do? Let's start with Jay. Yeah, thank you, Vince. This white paper is extremely interesting um, from, a, from a legal perspective, but also from a political and economic perspective. It proposes a sort of hybrid instrument involving elements of trade law and competition law and what, the, what in the EU we call state aid uh, law. And the idea is that um, under EU law, state aid granted by a member state has to be reviewed by and approved by the European Commission to ensure that it doesn't distort competition within the EU. But of course, the EU has no jurisdiction to review subsidies which are granted outside the EU. So the idea is that there is a gap between European Union competition law and trade law international trade law, which provides uh, limitations on subsidies that affect um, exports of goods. But there is, at least in theory, a, a gap that does not cover potential distortions of competition where a company receives subsidies outside the EU and as a result of those subsidies is able to compete more effectively in the EU, even if it's not exporting uh, directly subsidized goods uh, to the EU. And there are several limbs to the Commission's proposal. You mentioned public procurement, which um, 
may become relevant um, in uh, in certain sectors, for example, transport. Uh, but more more broadly, there's the, the commission is proposing to give itself a, a new general power for the commission to uh, investigate potential distortions of competition in the way that I uh, described and to impose remedies. But it would have to do so only in a case where the commission itself, <coughs> whatever body is, is given this new power, conducts an investigation and is able to develop the necessary factual uh, elements, which won't, often won't be easy because uh, the information required uh, is, uh, is outside the EU jurisdiction. Um, so I would expect those cases to be few and far between. The, the other element, which I think is most worrying uh, in the proposal, however, would impose a, a mandatory notification obligation, much like merger review, for any foreign investor uh, who is planning to acquire a European business, including indirectly, if they're acquiring a, a business which is headquartered in Asia, or the United States, or the UK, for example, but has subsidiaries uh, in the EU, if that acquisition could be said to be facilitated by a foreign subsidy, then that the acquirer would have to notify uh, this European body, probably the European Commission, and obtain approval. But given the difficulty in identifying whether an acquisition is facilitated by a subsidy uh, or not, uh, this would create a lot of uh, legal uncertainty for Chinese investors, uh, but also for also for other investors. I think the, the background of this proposal is, is interesting because you may recall that in 2019, the European Commission on Merger Review Grounds blocked the merger of Siemens and Alstom. And Germany and France argued that <coughs> this prohibition decision reflected a serious problem with EU merger review because they argued that the commission was not giving sufficient weight to competition from Chinese uh, SOEs uh, in, the, in the, uh, the same sector. And they argued uh, very forcefully that EU merger review needed to be fundamentally uh, revised to take greater account of distortions by foreign subsidies. So the European uh, Union and, uh, and national antitrust community rejected these arguments very strongly. And <clears throat> indeed, they have um, come back with this tool, which is not a uh, revision to merger review, but it's an additional notification regime on top of the merger review. So I think in, in a way, it is, it is seen as a reaction uh, to the criticisms by France and Germany and others, but in fact, it's a very different approach. Right, okay. So do you think then that this white paper is designed to target Chinese state-owned and enterprises investing in Europe? Well, I think given the, the, the general perception, rightly or wrongly, that uh, state subsidies in China give uh, Chinese companies a, uh, a big advantage over European companies, I think it's true that Chinese inward investment into Europe is likely to be scrutinized uh, very, very carefully under this tool when it's adopted. But I think that it has, a, again, it has a potentially much broader application because um, if you look around the world, there are many countries, including countries where the state-owned uh, SOE sector is much less important, 
regimes, take the United States, for example, where there are regimes supporting major uh, parts of the economy, agriculture, transport, energy, uh, healthcare, uh, for example, where state subsidies uh, arguably exist and arguably facilitate acquisitions. So I think this may be uh, an example of the if it's adopted of the genie that gets out of the bottle and turns uh, into something much bigger and broader than people expect. And maybe just to add on that, um, from a kind of UK point of view, one of the topics that's a, a very hot topic in terms of the Brexit negotiations between the UK and the EU is the extent to which the UK will have a state aid regime going forwards and to the extent to which any such regime might mirror the existing EU regime. And of course, if the UK ends up without a state aid regime going forward, so if the UK government is more free to give state aid and, and to support sectors of its economy, then potentially even the UK could be caught by uh, this new regime. So as, as Jay says, you know, um, could really... Uh, you know, come a lot closer to the to the EU than might have been expected um, when it was first put together. Caroline, let's stay with you here because I do want to ask you specifically about the UK, given that the country has been in the news quite a lot recently in relation to Chinese investment, most notably with Huawei and its involvement in the UK's 5G infrastructure. Um, so Caroline, what are the trends that you've seen in regards to the UK screening of Chinese investment over recent months? Well, I think it's it's a really interesting question, Vincent, because um, the UK has has not, for a number of years, really had a proper foreign direct investment screening regime. But um, a few years ago, as a result of a number of of, of deals and including um, uh, Chinese investment in the Hinkley Point uh, nuclear power plant, um, the government started to consider whether they felt that they should. Uh, have some additional proposals in this area and those proposals were kind of were published and were consulted upon but then went a little bit quiet but then again um partly i think as a result of the huawei um you know uh issues that you you referred to partly as a result of the pandemic as we as we started out with those proposals have very much come back on the table so what we've seen is some short-term adjustments to the uk regime to make it easier for a limited uh, number of deals to be looked at as basically as part of the current competition review, but also proposals for a completely standalone um, FDI screening regime that wouldn't operate as part of the competition regime and would have a very broad ambit looking at acquisitions of assets, potentially of assets of acquisitions of IP, as well as obviously businesses and with a very strong technology focus. So I think the kind of the, the picture in the UK is that we are likely to see later in this year um, draft legislation around this new regime. And that may, that may mean that we have quite a different landscape in the UK going forwards in terms of foreign direct investment, which will obviously be important to investors from China and also, you know, as we've discussed, uh, and also could be, could be applied to a wide range of different types of investment. So the, this standalone regime that you mentioned, it will come in the form of the National Security, National Security and Investment Bill, um, which is soon to be tabled? Yes, exactly. So we're expecting that to be uh, to be tabled later in later in this calendar year. Uh, so we're all we're all waiting to see exactly what that looks like when it's when it's finally published. Um, but there was a white paper that set out uh, proposals, which was actually published in 2018, um, and then the the bill implementing those proposals hasn't come yet, and we don't know to what extent the final bill will actually entirely reflect the proposals that were consulted on, 
or whether we'll develop them in some results in some ways obviously the world has moved on quite a lot since 2018 and a number of things are different so it may be that the government revises its view in some areas but, but yeah later this year I think we will see those proposals um, being tabled in the form of draft legislation. So let's move on to the last topic of discussion, which is the advice you have for Chinese investors and their lawyers as well, in light of what we've discussed today. Uh, let's start with Jay. Well, I think the, uh, a big takeaway uh, from uh, from this discussion, Vince, is that while the overall impact of these tools, be it FDI screening or the proposed new anti-subsidy uh, tool, uh, they go far beyond Chinese investors, it is clear that China is at the heart and uh, often at the origin of, uh, of these uh, initiatives. And Chinese investors won't, won't be alone. Uh, this increased scrutiny will apply to uh, inward investment uh, from different sources uh, into Europe. But Chinese investors do need to be prepared uh, for a increased level of scrutiny and also a much increased uh, level of complexity uh, I think Chinese investors are well aware of the difficulty in obtaining uh, EU merger approval. But as from uh, next month, you will also uh, have a heightened level of, of foreign direct investment scrutiny on top of that. And if the white paper proposals are adopted as from 2021-2022, you may also have a notification system on yet again on top of that, a third one. Uh, for acquisitions which are quote-unquote facilitated uh, by state subsidies. So the landscape is going to be uh, a lot more complicated and more uh, difficult going forward for Chinese investors. I think that's right, Jay. And I mean, I think I would add that I... I think there is a, a possibility that the kind of gravity of the assessments that we're doing for investors may shift a little bit over the next few years, whereas often the merger, the merger review has been, has been important in terms of the overall deal timeline and managing, as Jay says, you know, potentially different processes in different jurisdictions, um, gathering all the necessary information. That's been often a pretty critical part of the deal planning. I think with the increase in the number of these different regimes, potentially, you know, you might have to do a, a notification to a member state, you might have to do your notification in the UK, you might have to also deal with the anti-subsidy regime. Um, I think that those will become increasingly important in terms of your overall deal planning. And I, so I think investors just um, would be well advised to, to keep a close watch on these proposals as they're coming in and really to factor them in very early in the deal planning process because um, the implications on timing of some of these processes could be quite substantial. The UK proposals, as they were set out in 2018, envisaged potentially a, a fairly lengthy process if uh, the deal needed to go through the full the full review and hopefully most deals would be would be cleared at an early stage but it's important to be aware of the possibility of a lengthy full review and to have that in mind and to assess it rather than obviously to get a horrible shock um, when the deal's already halfway through being being executed so I think it is really just keeping a close eye on these on these issues and, and being ready to plan for them when they start to come into effect. Okay, great. Caroline, Jay, thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you for the invitation. It's very interesting and very timely. And thank you for listening to the China Law Podcast, a weekly discussion of China's business and financial sectors from a legal perspective. Make sure to check out our website, chinalawandpractice.com, to keep up to date with the latest Chinese legal and business news through our in-depth analyses, including contributions from our network of leading lawyers and in-house counsel, as well as full access to a searchable database of English full translations of PRC legislation going back 33 years. 
Trials are available, so you do get in touch if you'd like one. We'll be back next week with another episode. Stay tuned, and thanks again for listening. 